Good morning. Thanks for being here. My name's Brad. I'm, I think I know some of you. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I'd like to meet you. Let's say hi maybe later afterwards or now if you want. It doesn't matter. Um, I used to work construction for my dad, and I've said before, I wasn't very good at it. Here's a story on how I was actually terrible. Um, we lived in East Orange County. The town was Yorba Linda, but if I threw a rock, I would be in a town called Corona. He had a joke. Someone knows Corona? Really? Wow. Oh, it's you. And but behind you, too. I knew you, but I didn't know the people behind you who I haven't met. Hello, I'm Brad. Nice, nice to see you. Uh, corona usually smells like cows, um, or that's Chino, or something. But anyways, we lived over that way. My dad had a job in West L.A. on the other side of Los Angeles. And so the, there was this thing that he had me do. And I had just moved up. I'd started grad school. Um, I didn't have class. I had class one day a week or something like that. The other days of the week, I would get up at 3.45 in the morning, uh, which is like a half hour earlier than normal, so no big deal. Uh, but I would load up all the, tr- the truck full of tools into the back of the, I'd load it in the back of the truck. I'd hook up to a trailer every Monday morning, and I would take this trailer all the way across Orange County and Los Angeles County to get to the job way over there. It was awful. Uh, driving in traffic is one thing. Driving in traffic in LA with a, with a 40-foot trailer and a huge truck is another thing. Blinkers don't work. Well, they work. But as they see a blinker and it's like, oh, this means speed up. Don't let that guy through. And in California, you can't get out of the, the right two lanes, so you're hamstrung to the right lanes. You can't get over to pass other slow people. And then you can't get over because no one lets you in, no one lets you merge, and so you're stuck in traffic. Three hours of traffic. It's awful. And so I'm sitting there. I'm a little bit sleepy because it's a half hour earlier than normal. I'm in on the road. I grab this bag. I throw it in the truck. I, the bag of tools, throw it in the truck, hook the trailer up. I'm off and running or driving. I don't, didn't run. And I'm going across LA. I get there two and a half hours later. It's only like 40 miles. That's the tricky part. Uh, but it takes that long. I get there. I unhook the trailer. I put everything away. And then I walk in with the bag of tools that we needed, the big, huge bag. And I set it down in front of the guys who already give me a hard time because I'm the boss's kid. And I set it down and I open it up and they, they look at it and they start laughing. I was like, what what I do now? And they said, you brought the concrete tools. We're framing today. Oh. And I went, I know exactly what this means. I have to drive all the way back, pick up the other tools, and then drive all the way back across LA. I had to do it twice that day. Dad was not very pleased with me. Uh, it cost a ton, I mean, the time, everything that wasted, because I picked up the wrong bag of tools, not to mention when I start using the tools, everything goes wrong. When we're looking at the, these, uh, these gifts and when we're looking at this series that we're in, we're talking about tools and we're talking about loading our tool bags in order that we have a sustainable faith, in order that we can have faith during the long hauls of our life. What I'm afraid of is that you're going to take all of these things like Bible reading, meditation, uh, fasting, prayer, and we're going to load it all in our bags, but we're not going to be able to use any of it. 
that we'll be so full and we'll think we are prepared, but we'll have the wrong tools in us, that we will be underprepared even though we are packing so many things with us. The problem that we run into with these disciplines is we think that if we do these things, Jesus is going to like us more. And that's not the goal of these disciplines. Jesus already loves you more than you can imagine. There's nothing you could do to make him love you more. But the real thing that we need to do with these tools is to realize that what they do is they create space for us to experience the love that God already has for us. That the temptation that we'll have is we'll begin to pack our lives with the wrong things, with the wrong stuff. And so what we need to do as we look through these next, we're going to be done in three weeks, these next disciplines, is begin to, to start wondering what it's going to look like to have our faiths be sustainable for the long haul that we'll be able to know what tools to bring and what day so that we will be able to take root in what Christ says about us and that root will be again to produce fruit. And so today we look at the simplicity, the the practices of simplicity and generosity. And they they go together a lot better than what we think. Simplicity is the inner reality to generosity. And we begin to see this in scripture in Proverbs 21, 26. It'll be on the screen. Thank you, Craig. All day long, he, it is talking about the sluggard, craves more, uh, but the righteous give without sparing. You see the, you see the correlation? The, the sluggard, all day long, they crave more and more and more, but the righteous person has a lifestyle of simplicity and generosity. Can you spot the connection between giving and simplicity? It's simple. God wants you to experience more of him and break the bonds of needing more stuff. Then what happens is, as you are, is that in the pursuing of more, when we want more and more stuff, when we pursue more stuff, what we end up doing is sacrificing the hope in exchange for anxiety. Many of us have experienced this exchange. We think that this next purchase will bring us joy, that we finally get what we've been waiting for, we finally get what we've been saving up for, and we go out and purchase thinking, this is the last iPhone I'll ever need. <laughs> and then you're watching Tim Cook a year later say, oh, but wait, there's more. And now the iPhone X is out, and everyone's going, oh, man, I want that. We think that your completeness, you think that completeness is found in getting married, and so you spend every waking second looking for a spouse only to get married and realize that you can't find your completeness in another person. It doesn't work that way. Your spouse will disappoint you mostly all the time. I, I disappoint Carrie a lot. You can't find your completeness in a spouse. We think that your title will bring you more respect than a promotion or a raise, but really it just brings animosity. More and more people looking at you. It doesn't work. It doesn't bring you what you think. You think that your bank accounts will bring you security until the recession hits. The reality is the, the, everything that we put our hope in, we think that we're going to get hope and faith and that we're going to produce fruit from that. But what we find is that it just produces more and more anxiety. It takes away from the faith that we're supposed to have. 
It's not sustainable. So Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he has, uh, he has these last words to them and he uses this word, don't be anxious about anything, which is for those of you who have struggled with anxiety, doesn't work. But he, he's telling them how to have joy. The whole book of Philippians can be called the pursuit of joy. Joy is the point. He's not saying this will make you happy. Happy is a mood swing that goes away when you get stopped at the third red light. Joy is something that is deep within. And so Paul is writing to the Christians at Philippi saying, pursue joy. And one of the things that is stealing your joy is your anxiety. It says when you pursue joy, your anxiety will go away. Pursue it. Anxiety, the word he's used here is the Greek word that literally means having your thoughts possessed and divided between here and not yet. It's the word merimneo if you want to know the Greek word. Here and not yet. Your mind is split. And for those of you who have had an anxiety attack, you know exactly what this means. You are caught between the reality and what might happen or what could have happened, and you find yourself paralyzed. The word picture used with the word for anxiety is a half-lived life. And Paul is saying, don't live half-lived lives. Instead, he shows them a progression in Philippians 4 that moves from anxiety to peace, to contentment, to generosity, and to ultimately leads to strength. And it all comes through this idea of simplicity. But the question is that we have, do, do we really believe that? Because everything in our culture tells us that that isn't true. We all want more. We are told to buy more. Our culture shows us that we should rely on our stuff to define us, to bring us happiness. But in the reality, all they do is produce more and more of what we're trying to avoid in the first place. Anxiety. The cure that Paul has, uh, that Paul tells Phil, the people in Philippi is to live, if we believe simply that the Lord is near, you will need less things to sustain us and it will allow you to be people of radical hope and generosity. So the first discipline we talk about today is the inhaling aspect. You have to inhale in order to exhale. So the first inhale of this is we inhale simplicity Simplicity is defined as this, as letting go of, non, of the non-essential things in order to be filled with more things that matter. How many of you saw the, uh, the great philosophical movie of our day, Fight Club? <laughs> yes? First rule of Fight Club is we can't talk about it after this. There's a line in Fight Club that says this, you are not your job, you are not how much money you have in the bank, you are not the car you drive. You are not the contents of your wallet. You are not your khakis. <laughs> and what it's doing, it's saying that we, it, it's, it's, it's a social critique of our day in many ways, this movie. It's, if you can't watch it, don't watch it. But we watched it in college in a philosophy class. And it's showing us that we put so much stock in what we own that we essentially become what we own that the ownership somewhere in that, in, in our culture switches, that we become our khakis. We become our car. And I can't say khakis without thinking of the State Farm guy. Khakis. <laughs> For those of you who don't know the commercial, YouTube. But there's a tension here. 
We see our material things. We, we, so once we start talking about simplicity, the conversation usually goes, well, we can't have material things then. Then we just have to give everything away. Because if, if, if I have this, that means I'm owned by it. But that's not necessarily what scripture teaches here. Material things are able to be enjoyed. Possessing something, you're able to possess something without it possessing you. Do you see the difference there? Do we see the tension that's there? There's possession and then there's being possessed. And Paul is saying here, don't be possessed by your things. Ecclesiastes says this, So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun, which is all of us, to eat, drink, and be glad. And then then joy will accompany them in their toils, the days of life that God has given them under the sun. Our faith is not to be lived in this sort of asceticism where we think that we have to live in absence of any kind of pleasure there is. That we have to go live in a desert like a desert monk and stay there and not own anything. That's not what scripture is teaching. Deuteronomy 8 says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, that makes beer, vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce. You will lack nothing, a land where rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. In other words, he's bringing you into this place that is good. And he said to the people of Israel, you're going to go here. Don't go there and, and not enjoy any of it. God is giving you this gift. Enjoy it. He talks in Amos about how you, they will once again eat of the fruit of their labor. They're going to enjoy the land. Your things are meant to be enjoyed. And when we're mindful of this, when we're mindful that everything we have in our life is a gift from God, then the result is that we don't cling too tightly to our stuff. When we cling too tightly to our stuff, our stuff begins to define us. And when our stuff begins to define us, Jesus doesn't. And then you begin to go down the hole of being possessed by your possessions. The main point, uh, this was the main point of the rich young ruler passage in Luke 18. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We'll go a little bit more into it today. In Luke 18, it starts this way. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why don't you, and Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There's a lot going on in this passage, and we tend to to miss it. The first thing we should notice is that this person was called a rich or a young ruler. A ruler meant that you had some money, meant that you had some power. And with that power came a lot of influence, a lot of authority. He held some kind of office. He had a title. He had perks. He had wealth. He had front row parking at church. Everything was his, and he had it, and he enjoyed it. But in all of his achievements, he comes to Jesus, and he's missing something. He comes to Jesus, and he says, uh, Brad's version, I see what you have here, and I don't have it. I want to possess this. 
Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? All of my things, my wealth, my status, that's not giving me life. How do I have this? He's searching for peace. And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. And the man replies, I've kept those since I was a boy. Now, Jesus lists five of the Ten Commandments, but he left out some pretty heavy ones. He left out ones like having no other gods before him, have no other idols, take a Sabbath, don't covet your neighbor's things. The way that uh, Jewish teachers taught those days is they were only, all they had to say was a certain amount of words and you automatically filled in the blanks. So when he says the five, ten, five of the Ten Commandments, everybody listening that day would have known all the other five. And he would have known which ones he had left out. The first command, love the Lord your God with all your heart. In other words, put nothing before him. Don't let any other thing come between you and God. Don't let any other thing be your God, is what Moses was saying with the first command. But totally be absorbed in God. If you are able to keep that first command and be totally absorbed, then it will be easy not to covet other things because other things will not matter to you. Thou shall not covet means that you, that, that you shall love God enough to be content in all circumstances. You see the commands that Jesus left out are the ones that are speaking directly to this person. Jesus says five. The other people go, he's leaving out the big ones. This person isn't content in, Christ, in, in God. He is content in his things. He is having other gods before him. So it says, has no other gods. Don't make your stuff or your neighbor's stuff an idol. Don't find your meaning in other things is what Jesus is essentially teaching without saying it. And then when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. The man said that he kept all these commandments. He said, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then you come and follow me. In other words, Jesus says this to him, I want you to imagine your life with no money. I want to imagine your life where you don't ha even have a cell phone, not even a flip phone. You don't even have a phone in your pocket, maybe not even a pager. How many people have pagers still? Okay, good. I want you to imagine, Jesus says, a life with no trust funds. I want you to imagine no house on the beach, no Tesla, no college savings fund, no equity in your home, all of those things gone. And when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. One translation said it this way. He walked away with a heavy heart because he was holding tightly to all of his things and he was not about to let go. To put it more simply, Jesus exposes one thing about this person. It wasn't that he was wealthy. It was that he was possessing his wealth, possessed him. And his stuff became the, the functional gods of his life, and they owned his heart. And this person knew it. It was the source of his identity. It was his center. And when he thought of the idea of losing those possessions... He thought, there's no way I can live without having my stuff. And he would ultimately lose his life before he lost his things. And the thought of that made him go away very sad. He came to Jesus wanting life, 
probably anxious that he was missing something still. He didn't have everything he needed. And so anxiety took him to Jesus, and Jesus said, I know exactly how to get you through this. Your stuff is defining you. Your stuff has replaced me as your God. In order to get rid of this, you got to give it away. And notice, it wasn't the possessions that were sinful. We can look at this, and, and my gathering group on, on Wednesday got into a good one with this one. We could look at things, and we could say that uh, things are bad as we look at this passage. We could say that all possessions can go wrong and that we shouldn't own anything. Then why does Jesus say here, give your stuff away, sell it to the poor? If I own this candle and this candle is bad and I give the candle to Anna, I had to make sure you weren't Caitlin, I gave that to Anna. Now Anna has something bad, right? So have I solved the bad problem? No, I just passed it along. So Jesus isn't saying that stuff is bad. He's saying when your stuff becomes your God, now you've crossed a line. Now you're into the bad territory. Your possessions possess you. And you can't live simply because now your possessions are your God and there's no room in your life for God to be your God. Your possessions possess your heart. And this rich young ruler, his possessions possessed him. And then it stopped his transformation. The key that we need to have a sustainable faith is that, is that what we find in Paul, what he's saying in Philippians? What we find in the, in the rich young ruler is to be content in the provisions that God has given you. Stop looking for that one more thing that will satisfy you because it won't. And then if you do get that thing and you think it's going to satisfy you, you're going to be so afraid about dropping it and breaking it because all of your joy is found in that one thing. And when that one thing is gone, what do you have? Nothing. Don't get so tied to your stuff. In Philippians 4, Paul is saying, you want joy? You want joy that will last? You want a faith that will last? Don't let your things get in the way of what God is doing in you. The secret that Paul has is finding contentment in Christ. Contentment means sufficient. It means adequate. It means enough. And what enabled Paul to have this content is he saw that God was the giver of all gifts, that behind every gift that he had, it was God who gave it to him. Paul says, uh, thank you for your gift, Philippi. I'm glad, I'm glad you sent this to me. But he doesn't say that it came from them. It says, I thanked God for your gift. I thank God that you sent this to me. God was the sender of the gift. Even though Philippi wrote the check, God sent it, God sent it to him, and he praises God for it. Paul's perspective is that God is the giver of everything, and that's the perspective we need to have if we want to not be possessed by our stuff. Paul is exhibiting something that we see in Psalm 23. And I've asked Craig to put the entire psalm up there. Psalm 23 is probably one of the most famous psalms that there is. It's hung in hospitals. It's in people's homes. It's in people who aren't even Christians' homes. It's just a beautiful psalm. But the first line there, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Everything in Psalm 23 hangs on those first two words, the Lord. Because of the Lord, because of Yahweh, 
He is your shepherd. And because of that, you lack nothing. You have everything you need because the Lord is your shepherd. You have all of your needs met. Then it moves on. You have green pastures to eat from. You have still waters to drink from. You have guidance when things don't make sense. And even though you walk through the very scary, darkest valley of death, you're still not afraid. Everything you need is from this psalm. Craig, is there another slide? Your rod and your staff bring comfort in the presence of your enemies because the Lord is your shepherd. You don't need to be afraid. You anoint my head with oil. That is the healing that comes from knowing who your shepherd is. Oil was used by the shepherds to cure sheep of nicks and bruises to prevent injury. It was kind of like an anti-infection uh, thing. Because the Lord is your shepherd, you have goodness and love will follow you all the days of your life. It's not saying that you're going to be wealthy. We follow a savior who ended up on a cross and we're told to be like him. Following God doesn't say you're going to have tons of money. That's not what the gospel says. But the gospel says that you will have everything you need. That's what God is saying here. And when we start to put other things in front of God and say that my car is my shepherd, when my, possess, when my possessions are my shepherd, your car does fine until the transmission goes out. When we say uh, that my spouse is my shepherd, that goes great until I forget to put the dishes away. Uh, when we say the job is the shepherd until you're laid off, my retirement account is my shepherd until the recession hits, the latest and greatest is my shepherd until I get my credit card statement. And then I'm anxious again because now I have to figure out how to pay for it. My health is my shepherd. And then you get a cold. So what Paul is arguing here in Philippi, what the rich young rulers show us, is that God needs to be your contentment. And when we talk about simplicity, I fear that our faith is a lot like me driving to L.A. in the middle of the morning with my truck full of loads of stuff. But ultimately, I was empty because I had the wrong things. I had the wrong bag of tools. It isn't what I needed in the first place. So as you look at your life, as you look at, you, at what you have, what's weighing you down? What's clogging you are you defined by your things? I, I, I had the joy of emptying out our vacuum the other day, which is always gross. And, and I, I take it out to the garbage, and I notice that as I'm dumping it out, it was getting clogged, right? And so this is time to do it. And I'm dumping it out, and I'm hitting on the garbage, doing this so I don't inhale whatever that is. And, and uh, I'm noticing that there's really no big, big clumps in it. It's a bunch of tiny things. And so as you look at your life, as you look at it, it's maybe not this huge thing. Maybe it is a huge thing. But is it a bunch of little tiny things that have clogged you and have stopped the transformation that God wants to do inside of you? Are you so worried about losing stuff that you can't grab onto what God has for you? So what's weighing you down? What's clogging your filter? And real quick, here's some keys for, for living simply, simplicity. Live your values. Don't get sucked into the latest craze when everyone tells you you need to buy this. No, your phone is not moving slower since the iPhone 8 was introduced. It's what you're thinking. 
No, you don't need the new thing. You don't live your values. Don't be so taken up by the latest trends. Think about what you buy. What are the effects of your purchase? Give stuff up. Do you really need this? Give stuff up. Pray. There was a study that we talked about at Teaching Team that those who pray showed, uh, or those who had an active prayer life actually cared more about their purchases than those who didn't have an active prayer life and actually cared more about the environment than those who didn't have an active prayer life. I'd like to see the details on that study, but it sounded interesting to me. Pray about what you buy. Don't, but don't reach for simplicity for simplicity's sake. It has to point to something greater. Paul is pointing to something. He says, yes, don't be anxious. Here's how you not be anxious. Be content. But it's pointing to something. And he gets to Philippians 4.13, which is like the email signature of the year. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. When I used to get autographs from baseball players as a kid, I could always tell the Christian athlete because he put Philippians 4.13 at the end of it. And so it's like he can hit 300 because of Philippians 4.13. But here's, here's what Paul's getting to. If you want to see the strength in your life, the only reason that he is content is so that he can see Christ moving through him. This contentment brings the strength that Christ is trying to do with him. Contentment, simplicity, leads to us exhaling generosity. When you realize that you don't need your things, what are you more apt to doing? Giving it away. When we realize that I don't need a third whatever it is, I can easily give away the other two because all I need is one. In Acts 2, uh, I'm running out of time, so we'll go quick. In Acts 2, it says this. They devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that they performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together, and they held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So Frank's over here, and he has three rakes. And and John's over here, and he doesn't have any, and his business is is failing. So Frank, this is fictional names. I don't think they had a Frank in the Bible. And so Frank goes, do you need this? Here you go. Use it. Why? Because Frank's rakes that he used for his job didn't give him joy. What gave him joy was handing it away so John over here can be successful. You see how it works? Simplicity, generosity. Don't be defined by your things so you can simply give away your things to those who have need. What do you have two of that you really only need one of? We don't struggle with a lot of generosity. You, you guys are a very generous congregation. I've experienced this. But what do you have more of than what you need? And can you give that away to somebody who doesn't have it? Can we live simply knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from God? And because of that, we know that he'll take care of us. And we can live simply and give away the things we don't need. We can enjoy the things that we have. My, uh, my, one of my mentors, and I've talked at length about my struggle with anxiety, and I was on the phone with him, one of my mentors, a few a while ago, talking about this. And he said, Brad, the next time you're anxious about something, find out what you're anxious about. Like, do some work with it. Think about it. Just don't sit there and freak out. And so I did. 
And I realized that I was always anxious about money. It's a normal anxiety thing. And so I told him, and he said, so when you find yourself anxious about money, write a check to the church. Here's, I'm not saying you should do this. This was just me. And here's what happened. Or, or he said, buy someone lunch. Do something nice with that money. Give it away. Why? Because I was gripping too tightly to that bank account balance. And it wasn't, I wasn't able to trust because of that balance. And me saying, okay, this is controlling me. Me taking someone to lunch, buying a gift for somebody was me practicing simplicity. I'm not going to let this stand in the way of the transformation that God has for me. My anxiety about this is causing me uh, to stumble. I need to get rid of it. I need to trust God that he will provide in this next season. What do you find yourself most anxious about? When it's 3.30 in the morning and you wake up and your mind is racing, what is it? Is God maybe trying to get you to let go of something? Maybe it's not finances. Maybe it's a possession that you have. Maybe it's taking control of your life. And maybe it's time you give that away. Maybe you don't need it anymore. Maybe it's a status symbol. Maybe it's a title. We hold on to our things and then our things define us. And then when other things define us, God won't and God doesn't because we don't let him. Some tips for generosity that we have. Pick a few places that will uh, impact others. Baby steps. Again, live your values. Don't be pressured into giving something that God's not calling you to give. You give where God's called you to. If we all gave to the same thing or we all gave to the, the, the trendiest thing that's calling for our gifts, there's other places that, won't, that don't, won't get what they need. So you give to where God's called you. In Corinthians, he says, give, to the, give according to the grace that has been given. Uh, teach the next generation. My dad's company went from huge, multi-million dollar company down to like him and two other workers. It was the, the recession of the late 80s. And what I know, noticed from my dad was this, that during the time where business was crumbling, selling, you know, trying to avoid bankruptcy, I noticed my dad in uh, always being generous with what he had, always giving stuff away. Why? Because he was most anxious about this. And so using wisdom and what God had, he said, I'm anxious about this. I need to trust God in it, so I'm going to give and it, he wasn't foolish. He was still a good steward. But he was able to give and he was able to watch God move and trust. And in that, he, he taught me and my brothers and my sister about how to trust, even when it doesn't make sense to trust. He showed us that money and possessions were a resource uh, to be shared and not a commodity to be hoarded. And it, the last one, you are what you repeatedly do. You are what you repeatedly buy. You are, uh, and so it takes practice to let go and to give away. And in all of these practices, my hope is in that we load you with more things to do in order to get God to love you. God already loves you. He wants to work in you. He wants to bring you transformation. My prayer is that in this, you will see that God is trying to transform various places of your life, and oftentimes we don't let him because of our fear, because of anxiety, that we might not have enough. The Lord is your shepherd. You already have everything you need. Will you pray with me? Father, may we be people 
of simplicity. May we be people of generosity. Lord, you've gifted uh, people in this room to make money, and that is a beautiful and wonderful gift. Lord, we pray that you continue to bless them. But Lord, in that blessing, we, we pray that they see the responsibility not to be possessed by the blessings that you've given. Lord, may they enjoy, but also may they see that the resources you've given them are meant to bless others. In Genesis, God, you make Abraham very rich, and then you say, I'm blessing you so that you may bless others. God, may we continually see that our possessions were meant to be blessings for others and not necessarily always for us. So, Lord, we pray that you continue to bless. Lord, I pray that we continue to trust. May we understand what it means to have you as our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. We have everything that we need. And so, God, may we come to you and may we lay our things down and say, Lord, may you transform us. Will you speak to us about ourselves and our stuff? May the only possession that we ever want is possession of you. In Jesus' name we pray.